Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. In this episode, I am going to talk a bit about initiative for the, well, for OD&D with Chainmail, but also with the new Chainmail Sword and Sorcery hack. And we will take some calls and also a couple of little unboxings. So uh, buckle up and here we go. Okay, let's talk for a minute about initiative. So there's been a bunch of initiative talk going on uh, uh, after the October initiative uh, contest, uh, Nerds RPG Variety Cast. A lot of different opinions. I often see in these conversations things like realistic thrown around a bunch. <laughs> um, but the reality is for me is that initiative is about just keeping the table orderly. So in a, in a game like D&D, most RPGs for that matter, are abstracted combat. You know, we're using an abstract for combat. Every round, when you make one attack roll in a round, that doesn't mean that you're only swinging your sword once. Or maybe it does, right? Um, what it, but what it really is, is it's covering a whole lot of things. That's why you're, you've got your armor class, right? It's not like you're standing there, they swing at you, they miss, you swing at them, you miss. You know, things are going on all at once. This is how our imaginations work, right? So trying to make that realistic and following exact segments and stuff, to me, it just adds more crunch to the game than I care to have, which so I generally fall on the side of the side of side initiative. But even more so in this case, because I'm translating chainmail over, chainmail essentially uses side initiative. Well, there's two kinds of initiative in chainmail, really. There is one where you write your orders down and then everybody flips them over simultaneously. So that allows you to not really know, <laughs> I guess, what the, where the other person is going to move. And the other way to do it is to roll a d6. And the winning side, it decides who goes first. Now, you might be thinking, whoa, 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 why would you want the enemy to go first? Well, in chainmail, the only part of the combat that is not simultaneous is movement. And because you can do split move and fire, and you can also move, shoot at people, you know, uh, missile fire into people who are moving through your field of fire, that can make a big difference, you know, as far as who moves first. And again, I don't think that's meant to be realistic. It's not like you're actually waiting for the other person to move. It has more to do with, you know, uh, the idea of just keeping things orderly at the table. Then after that, everything works down in phases. And I know a lot of people look at phases as not being realistic, but again, to me, it's all about keeping order at the table. Once everybody has moved, then we do in any uh, uh, missile fire. Um, it, of course, if they haven't done any split fire, obviously. And that happens with both sides and it happens simultaneously. Both sides roll all their missile attacks at once, then you remove any combatants. Then both sides, in my case, would, would do spells uh, there's artillery, I believe, and it's what goes next in chainmail. And again, simultaneously. Now, that still allows for interruption of spells, but it really only in allows for interruption of spells um, by missile fire. And you might be thinking, well, that sucks. I want to interrupt a spell with my sword. Well, as it turns out, in, in the rules, at least the way I run it, you cannot cast a spell at all when you're in melee. So again, that movement part matters, right? you might want to move last so you can make sure that you move to the magic user so they can't get away from you because then they can't cast a spell. You have interrupted it via movement. So anyways, um, once everybody's uh, cast their spells, again, simultaneously, then all the melee happens simultaneously. And then there is a second round of missile fire for those who are allowed to have it. After that, you have, you know, reaction, blah, blah, blah. So this is essentially simultaneous. And the reason why I like simultaneous initiative is I think that it really encapsulates, and again, I hate to use the word realistic, but if you're using an abstracted combat system, in a way, this to me is more realistic because now we're abstracting the combat even greater, right? And you can have these situations where two people could actually stab each other and both die in the same round. 
because you're both rolling. If you're if you both you and your opponent roll and you both get kills, you're both dead, you know? And I think that actually works out to be really interesting. Now, I get that some people probably won't like that because they like the idea of winning the initiative and then they, the other side doesn't even get a chance to go. But to me, I found it works really well. I wasn't sure how well I would like it, uh, to be honest with you, but we've been running a lot of OD&D with Chainmail and it's really good, in my opinion. Now, the only time I kind of deviate from this a little bit is, well, there's two times. One would be in man-to-man combat because of that, now you're getting down to the nitty-gritty, right? Now you're less abstract. I mean, obviously it's still abstract, but in man-to-man combat, you've got your parries, the weapon length matters, the, the weapons versus armor matters. So now you're in a more a tightly controlled uh, situation. And in that situation, then you will have somebody go before the other. So like if you've got your spear and they come charging at you with their dagger, you're going to go first. And if you kill them, they will not get a chance to attack you because you, you know, impaled them on your spear. So there it matters. And then also in fantasy combat, while fantasy combat is technically simultaneous, I found that narratively it's fun to play out one side at a time. But again, just remember when you're doing it that even if the the monster kills the hero or whatever with the blow, the, or, or the hero kills the monster, they will still get their last parting shot as it would be. So um, and again, it's all simultaneous. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious what you guys, I know a lot of people called into Jason's show. I'm curious what you guys think. Do you, do you, uh, do you like this system? I know some people don't, and I'm curious maybe why, because a lot of people just stated a little bit of why they didn't like it, but I'm, I'm, I'd be curious why people don't like simultaneous initiative, or maybe they do. Maybe it's because you never tried it. Maybe you don't understand it. Maybe you don't like the phases because it doesn't seem, it seems clunky to you. Uh, I'm curious what people think, because I, I used to think a lot of those things, and I don't anymore. <laughs> It's, it was one of those situations where the more I've used this kind of system, the more I think it's way more elegant than uh, any other kind of system. Now, I guess the, the one thing somebody might be saying is, well, yeah, but then it does, you, you know, your character skill doesn't matter for initiative. And you know what? I'm fine with that. So <laughs> I won't argue that that's not the case, but I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm very much okay with your character's ability scores not affecting their initiative. So anyways, let me know what you think and give me a call. All right, so I've got a bunch of calls. <laughs> Sorry, these have been sitting for a while, guys. Um, we got BJ from the Arcane Alienist. We've got Joe from Hindsightless. Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Carl from the Geomologist Presents. We've got Nikki from Infiltrating the Bro SR. John's calling in as well. And if I missed one, I will make another recording. And Daniel, not to pull you back to... Uh... I don't. I can't remember if you said this on an earlier episode or if it was one of your call-ins to to, to one of us. But um, you'd mentioned role-playing elves as in you know elves just not having any sense of time, like they just want to stop and <laughs> look at the flowers, and everybody else is like, "Hey, we got to get, you know, we have to get to the next whatever point in the quest is pretty quick." And they're no, 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 no. I'll be there in a minute. Just give me a minute. And they just don't have any sense of time because they're so long-lived. I really appreciated that. Uh, not only just in of it, it was it was a good way to describe it, but you're also a couple years ago. I sat down and started to sketch out like a psychological profile of an elf, just thinking just as a thought experiment. And I came up with a real similar idea that they would just not have any sense of urgency. Um, so I may I may do an episode on that, but I want to let you know that I think we're on the same vibe on that. And I really appreciated your comment. I know that was quite a while back. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to, to, to hear uh, your, your profile and your thoughts on the elves. It's really interesting because I feel like I get this vibe with elves, 
but not as much with dwarves, even though dwarves are also, uh, you know, considered to be very uh, long lived in, in most D&D worlds, not as long as elves, but definitely much longer than humans. I'm not sure why dwarves just feel more connected to the earth, maybe because of the digging or the, the way they were portrayed in, in, in Tolkien. Um, they just seem more human in, in their characteristics and how they acted. Um, to me, then, like the elves, it's just felt like they were like above everything. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious what you come up with there. Dude, that was an awesome session recap of your OD&D chainmail game that you've been playing in. Sounds really, really fun. Uh, but towards the end, you were talking about, or maybe it wasn't during the recap, you were talking about how when the dwarf was facing the demon wolf and he broke his sword and you're like, yeah, just use that same sword. And then you were talking about how if you give it a negative or a penalty or something, the, the dwarf would have been less likely to use it. But I guess my question is, if it doesn't change at all when the sword breaks, what's the point of having the sword break? Um, yeah, it, it. I don't know. It seems like it should impose some sort of penalty either to attack because it's harder to attack. The weight is way different now um, or to damage something. But just to keep everything the same, like why have the sword break? I don't know. Anyway, man, curious to hear your thoughts. Peace out. That is an excellent question. And I <laughs> surprisingly, I actually have an answer because, you know, a lot of times I'm like, well, you know, uh, no, well, see, in fantasy combat, it doesn't matter. And, and I guess that's the thing, right? So let me just state the, the, the mechanics first, and then I'll get into a little philosophizing about it. But in every kind, in man-to-man combat and in troop combat in OD&D, your weapon is super important. The weapon you use, um, is, I mean, it basically determines your two-hit and your damage in a lot of ways because it comes down to, like, you know, scoring kills. Uh, and in man-to-man, it, it matters against different armor types. So your weapon is super important in those two forms of combat. In the fantasy form of combat, though, it's not important. And that's what makes the fantasy combat different. It's it's this like elevated combat that only heroic types heroes basically can use, and it's part of I think the philosophy of the 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 fantasy combat is there's just something inside the hero that allows them to fight through. Now, I just watched so maybe you've seen it or not or like it or not the Beastmaster. <laughs> funny enough, like two days ago, and spoilers for a movie from the eighties. Basically, he gets into a fight with this guy. Um, and I would, if you watch that fight where they fight in the, on the fiery bridge, that is my exact idea of what fantasy combat would be. There's times during that fight where he has a sword and the other guy has like this crazy mace thing. There's times where they're both barehanded. There's times where they're just using things that are like, you know, available in the environment. And all that is basically a battle of wills, Right. It doesn't have to do so much with scoring exact hits when you're dropping those hit dice because they immediately reset as soon as fantasy combat is over. You're not actually getting cut or hit or whatever. It's You can look at it more of like a battle of wills, and that's why the weapon doesn't matter. And that signifies or is, is what makes the fantasy combat different and something special that only the heroes can involve themselves in, right? No mere mortal man or woman can stand up against an ogre, right? Uh, well, not an ogre. An ogre's not a good example. Um, thinking of a creature that can only be attacked on fantasy combat, like a vampire, I don't know. Um, but a hero can. And that's kind of what it is, right? That that's why. So that's why it matters. So it might have been a little unclear, because obviously not everybody knows the system inside and out. 
but yeah, that's why. In fantasy combat, it, if so to answer your question, in fantasy combat, it doesn't matter. And to me, that's what I was kind of excited about or was talking about, how I liked that in that case. But as soon as we uh, got out of fantasy combat and you had to fight on regular combat, like if you had encountered like a regular, like a wolf to fight, that two-handed sword would have basically been useless because it was broken. Or maybe it would have been treated as like a dagger or something. So um, yeah, 100%. It does matter in two of the three kinds of combat, just not in fantasy combat, where it's, for lack of a better way to explain it, it's a battle of wills or a battle of fate. Who wins that combat? The hero or the fantastic creature to which you're battling? Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Really enjoyed the session recap. I do hope you do. You continue to give us those. Really fun. If you go de- more detailed mechanics, that's fine. If not, that's okay, too. I but, but yeah, I, I enjoy hearing the story, how you're playing the game and how, you know, you're just showing that just because a character is weak in one area doesn't mean they're unplayable. So I really appreciate that. And I'll listen to the rest of your show now. By the way, I think that, you know, the using the different tables in Chainmail really does give you that flexibility. And when you get to fantasy combat and you can use that broken sword to fight with, you know, just really mirrors the fiction, you know, and, and I think that's perfect. So, you, you know, we, we can say what we want about narrative and hero points and this and that, but the system's designed to allow you to do that kind of thing. And it, it just works. It sounds like it works really well. So yeah, very cool. And yeah, please keep including those recaps. Thanks Jason. Yeah, I think I will. I think it's really fun. I mean, I, of course, I put it in the podcast a couple times where I put the actual plays we're recording, but I think this is probably uh, shorter, so maybe more palatable for a lot of people um, to hear it that way. And then you get the meat of the uh, of the system, which is really what you know. Every game has role playing, so um, listening to an actual play can be fun. But uh, here, I think we're really trying to get down to the meat of it. So uh, yeah, I'll probably keep with the session recaps. So thank you. Hey Daniel, this is Nikki from Infiltrating the Bro SR. Heard your recap on our OD&D with Chainmail game, and it was pretty accurate, so good on you. Um, I really wanted to talk about the clash mechanic that happened in the fantasy combat, because it was really, really cool and important and one of the best uh, combats I've ever run as a GM. Because of the way the clash mechanic works, one of the characters managed to survive much longer than um, he should have, probably, because every time the monster would try to hit him, Another character would clash with the monster, and so the monster would do no damage. As you know, the clash mechanic says that if you score the exact number you need to hit the monster, and the monster does damage, then there will you take no damage. If the monster misses, then the monster gets damaged. And I'm running out of time here, so I'll do another message. So, as I was saying, the clashes really make a difference in fantasy combat, and they make the combat very exciting as the character was down only to one HD. So if at any time the monster had hit him, he would have gone down, right? But because of the clashes, he kept getting extra chances, and it was very uh, intense and fun and suspenseful, which is what we want out of fantasy combat. My favorite part of fantasy combat is the narrative structure of it and the fact that he was fighting with a broken sword, and, and it was so... It was so suspenseful as to whether he was going to live or not. It was just very, very, very cinematic and interesting. So it's a great game, OD&D with Chainmail, and I'm a big fan. Having a great time running it and can't wait to see 
what you do in the future with your sword and sorcery version. I'm sure we'll be talking about that um, a lot in the days to come. Uh, yes, Kalashos. So this is interesting because I remember when we were playtesting, you know, the original concepts that I had. And in Chainmail, when you score an equal hit, basically it knocks the person back, which is fine because they have to move back half a movement or whatever it is. And that's cool if you're playing on a tabletop. But when you're doing theater of the mind, especially in fantasy, the way we're playing it, you know, how do you really make that work? Is it just a miss then, basically? Um, which was one option I had thought of. You know, I thought of just saying, well, you got to score over the number, you know, to it. But uh, we came up with the idea of clashes, um, you know, kind of just trying out some different things. And, and I really do think that they make a huge difference. What I think, what I, the reason why I made them the way that I did, another reason is because I think if it's, when you put some creatures against others, like there's a lot of sevens and eights as far as the numbers you have to hit. And of course on 2d6, seven and eight are the, you know, that's like the most common things you're going to roll. So what ends up happening is you do get a bunch of those clashes. And by, again, by the original rule, it knocks them back again, which is fine. But in fantasy, that wouldn't really mean anything since we're not really tracking movement or whatever. So it literally would just be okay, nothing. And okay, nothing is, you know, that's not so fun. So yeah, I, uh, I definitely, definitely think the Clash is the, the uh, unsung hero of fantasy combat in a lot of ways, especially when there's multiple player characters fighting against a creature, because essentially that creature only, you know, gets the, the one fantasy attack. So if one, if both player characters hit them, you know, or one gets a clash, let's say, and the other, uh, the other hits, then you be able to do damage to the monster while basically making it unable to hurt you. Whereas if you both hit, I mean, you obviously would kill it faster, but you know, like you said, that one player character would have died for sure. So there you go. Clashes are pretty awesome. Thanks for calling. Since you asked, I think, yeah, I'd like to hear more recaps of the Chainmail OD&D game. It does sound really fun, at least the way you guys play it. And that ultimately, I think that's what it is, is like if all the players buy in and want to try the system and want to enjoy the system and not quibble over, you know, semantics or get caught up too much in rules. Right. So um, it does sound pretty cool. I I guess I need to review Chainmail or maybe have a document that I'd like to peruse to see how you get to where you get with the number of dice that you roll. Um, yeah, it does seem kind of it kind of seems fun because I know the Warhammer verse has done this, you know, to make their tabletop minis games kind of RP ish with Necromunda and the other one that takes place in the and the Warhammer old world. But uh, yeah, sounds cool. Thanks, Carl. I will put a link in this, the show notes here to the Google Drive that has the, the chainmail breakdown stuff. So if you want to download and check it out. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. When I first started messing around with this whole idea uh, of chainmail with OD&D, the first thing I did was I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't look at chainmail because it's older. Maybe I'll look at something like Warhammer. And the reason why I didn't go with Warhammer, and not that I dug that deep into it, was not because it wasn't a good system. It actually seemed very similar, at least a skirmish game. But, um, but because it has all kinds of lore with it. And what I wanted was no lore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I think now that I've got it pretty established, I'm looking at other things. Like I have Frostgrave as well, which I think also has lore. You know, just to see what other um, little add-ons if I want or to, type of thing to do. Especially if I want to go to a different genre, you know. Uh, like Jason was talking about on the Audio Dungeon Discord, I mean, you really could take this into anything. You could do, you know, Space Marines uh, as well as you do Medieval. 
Okay, here I am sitting on my front porch. Um, we might hear some traffic go by because it's about that time that we'll come home from work, but the, the frogs or crickets or whatever we're at, I don't know if you guys can hear those. And I got my mail, and it looks like I got a package from Lulu.com. This is one of those uh, cardboard packages that they send that are kind of like folded over, which it's on a box. It's more like a kind of folded, almost like bigger than an envelope, but not really. And it's just got that kind of paper tape across it. So I have my knife here, my uh, up and nail, uh, my little French knife. I'm just going to cut this one little line here, and the whole thing should unfold, if I'm not mistaken. And also, I've used Lulu. Um, they used to do all these things with free shipping, and I would wait and then order tons of stuff all at once. But then uh, when they stopped having free shipping, I stopped. <laughs> all right, so a few things. Oh, yes, I'm going to have to go through this, but I created a supplement. I don't know if I talked about this much or at all on the podcast with my friend Nikki. I created a supplement. Oh, okay. Definitely got to modify this. Um, called Hateful Options. And it's for the game Hateful Place. And uh, it's got options basically to run different types of uh, environments and some house rules, some settings and such. Uh, the game is super, super flexible. Um, so you can do so many different things with it. We were doing so many different things. So we decided to uh, kind of write them down. I, I reached out to, uh, to Dave and he said, sure, make a supplement. So but it's a, it's available on Drive Through RPG as a PDF, and it works great. But I'm looking at the printed book, and I can see that I'm going to need to adjust my margins because uh, everything's pushed into the margins. So this is basically not a very good copy. So I'm going to have to make another order. However, I have two of these, so perhaps I will give these away because obviously they're I can't not that I was going to sell them anyways, but you know they're not for sale. Maybe we'll I'll bring them with me, and when I run take a place somewhere, I'll just give them to whoever plays. Uh, I also got um, another printout of Chainmail because I'm wearing mine out because I haven't through it a bunch. I decided to get it uh, staple bound now that they're doing that again. Uh, I like that better. So another copy of Chainmail here. Um, I also got one more copy of Warriors of Mars, which is a... Uh, of course, you can't get this really any, anywhere um, because it was... Uh, my understanding was it was a cease and desist by the... Uh, by the... Uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, not... Uh, not the one who created John Carter, obviously, because he was not around anyway, but his estate basically told TSR to not sell this game, which they then stopped doing. And apparently, uh, well, I mean, if you look on um, eBay, you can find copies for, like, a ridiculous price for the book. But if you look around, you can find the PDF floating around. And uh, that's what I did, and I just made a Lulu book, and it cost me, like, $3. So the other thing I got, which is really interesting, is this is... Um, Dungeons and Dragons single volume edition. So compiled, it's compiled by Gray Harp, edited by Il Mail TM, illustrations by Frank Frazetta. So basically, this is somebody took the time to take the entire uh, the, the Little Brown books, the first three books of ODD, and kind of reformat them into a single. Uh, I guess it's eight and a half by 11 um, format. Kind of like almost like the BX book. Oh, this is interesting. I haven't really looked through it too much. Uh, it looks like they, uh, yeah, it's got all the monsters in it. It's basically, if you could imagine like Swords and Wizardry, that's what it reminds me of. It's basically all condensed, except it is the actual rules from um, OD&D is my understanding without any, uh, well, or at least very minimal um you know, modification. So it's, you know, where Swords of Wizardry makes changes, and of course they tell you what they do. 
Um, this one apparently does not, which is kind of cool. Um, there is an appendix in the back for uh, the Thieve class, which I think they got from the, the Greyhawks on the line, of course. And um, catapults and jousting. There's a little section on using chainmail combat where they basically just reprinted uh, an article on Strategic Review where um, that guy, you know, kind of talks about using it, which they seem to imply that you, or they being Gygax, seems to imply that you really use it only for group combat, like troop combat. But as you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, I like to use it for both. So I thought it'd be pretty cool because I've got my my version of OD&D, you know, which I paid for. So I don't feel bad <laughs> taking this. Uh, I think they produced this during a time period where you couldn't get uh, legally um, the OD&D PDF, uh, PDFs anywhere. And also, I guess this falls under the open game license. So it's not like uh, it's a violation, really. So if you just Google for Dungeons and Dragons single volume, you'll see it pop right up. And uh, it looks pretty good. So if you're interested in OD&D and you do not have uh, the three little brown books and you just want to kind of peek at it, then this is an option. I do recommend, of course, always buying the original if you can. Uh, I think it's like 10 bucks uh, for the PDFs on drive-thru. What I'm really hoping they're going to do is uh, re-release the them again, like in like a little box set or something for the 50th anniversary. So so fools like me can spend way too much money to buy a reprinted box, <laughs> but I will do it for sure. And uh, yeah, so haven't been doing too many unboxings lately. I do have a very special unboxing. I keep mentioning this. Maybe I'll never do it. I should just do it, but uh, yeah, I, I, I want to make an episode about it because I think it's a pretty cool product, although I have not opened it yet because it's sitting in the box. But in any case, that is my Lulu order. Okay, looks like we have another unboxing. Dun, dun, dun. I've got a package here. It is uh, soft. It's like a soft, pouchy. I can't really describe it. It's six... Yeah, about six inches by about eight inches and by about four inches, but it's soft. It clearly has several boxes inside of it. Let's check this out. This. Oh, I have my Utility Knight Cobalt. Ooh. Oh. This is very exciting. Little tiny box. Kind of looks like an Altoid box. Best way I can describe it. It's got basically... Like a, D, a D20 with the, with the chunk taken out of it. What's inside here? What could it be? Chocolate Dice by Keko. Keko, Coco, basically. This is a, a person who I followed on Twitter the other day because they responded to something. And I realized they had a, they, their thing said, I make dice out of chocolate. And I was like, what? So I followed them and they've got dice made out of chocolate and they had different special Halloween colors. So I've got, oh man, I've got four here. There's uh, orange is like gold color, this black, and there are purple. So these are made out of chocolate and they will be a good gift for somebody. I don't know who might enjoy these probably or the gamers in my life that I have. So that'll be for my group. That's a very exciting. So there you go. I will put a link in the show notes to that, to this, to, oh, look, thank you. Gecko. Use, oh, I'm not going to read it because there's a code here for 15% off the next order. I suppose I should put that over the air. So 
once we taste how delicious these are and order some more, we'll get 50% off. Also, there's something else in here. I think it's just a, uh, I think it's like a cooling pack. Yeah, it's just a little ice pack. So that, I guess they didn't melt, but it's not really that. It's not so warm, so that would be a problem. All right, the second thing I have here. This is from Exalted Funeral Press. It is roughly 18 inches square-ish, mostly square, and fairly flat. It's got its brown paper, or not brown paper, it's brown cardboard, but it's got like that brown paper uh, tape across it, which I will cut now. Again, still using my utility knife. Oh yes, this is exactly what I thought it was. This is from a Kickstarter, and it took a long time because of, you know, various problems in the world. This is Putrance Regnant, a Morkborg crawl, bog crawl. It has a picture of a humanoid-ish thing with a crocodile-y bird face that has a sword through its gut. This looks very metal. But what's interesting about this is, this is a record, or a LP, as they might say. And you play the music with multiple songs on it. Looks like there's about four songs on it. And while you, the music is playing, you play the game. I guess there is inside. It's got plastic, let me see. Open it up. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, we've got the bog crawl. So when you open up the record album, you've got your uh, your adventure. <laughs> and then inside, we've got the record itself that has <laughs> also a map on it. And the different areas, uh, looks like random adventures, uh, contrast. Ooh, the record itself is this like yellowy, Mm. It's like, yeah, it's like a yellow-green color. The center of it looks like some kind of like weeds or something growing. And then it's got, it's like, it's all like dirty looking. So, very cool. Very cool. I don't know. Um, you know, I thought Markboard was kind of an interesting game. And then when I saw this, I was like, oh, look at that. An adventure that is a record album. How could I not get that? So, fortunately, because I know that this is what you're asking right now, I do, in fact, have a record player. So, uh... I guess if you don't have a record player, you're out of luck. I can't. I think actually they that they sent to MP3s of the music as well. I think I already have those, so I guess you could do it that way. All right. So that is the end of this unboxing. So I have chocolate and a metal uh, adventure. That seems like a pretty successful uh, unboxing to me. Yo, Daniel. So on the topic of adventures, should be stupid with their money. <laughs> I. I when I first moved to Seattle, I lived in an area called Ballard for a long time. And when I first moved in there, it was a fisherman's hangout spot. Like all the fishermen from the trips up to Alaska and all over the place would all come to Ballard to party and drink. And they would spend their money like madmen. They would, uh, most of the bars there had a bell like an old fashioned bell that you could ring the bell. And that meant you were buying everyone in the bar shots they would do that all the time. They'd get paid in cash. One time walking home from the bars at like three in the morning, there was just 
a trail of like singles, fives and tens all the way down the street. Must have been, I mean, me and my buddies were playing like tackle football to collect all this money. Must have been a couple hundred bucks. But yeah, absolutely. Be stupid with your money. It's awesome and fun. That's exactly, you know, it's just like anything, right? People get their money. Like if you think about vacation places, like if you, when you go on vacation, a lot of people, they will spend money on the stupidest things that they would never do when they were just at home. It's just when people have extra cash and they feel liberated to spend it, they'll do it. So yeah, <laughs> especially when you haven't been able to for a long time. Well, obviously no one would adventure unless they were doing it for the money. That's why in the real world, there's no such thing as billionaires because everyone retires when they hit 10 million or so. And no one ever becomes an explorer or a daredevil or a mercenary. But just hypothetically, what would an adventurer do if he or she did have a lot of treasure? Well, build a dungeon to store it in, of course. And such is the circle of life. Yes, exactly right. Circle of life. It's funny you say that because the two things you connect together, uh, kind of being funny, is what happens, right? If you look at a modern billionaire, uh, you, I would say most of them, I certainly don't have any hard facts on this, but based on my general knowledge of it, people with lots of money don't risk their lives. They risk other people's lives. So uh, honestly, it, it would even make sense for an adventurer that had, let's say, 10,000 gold pieces to be that guy in town hiring a party to go clear part of a dungeon. Because they know they, they don't want to risk their lives on, on, on that part where they want to maybe get down to another part of the dungeon. So I could see that kind of play happening, but that's not adventure gaming. You know, adventure gaming is, like you say, daredevils and going into things and this and that. So you've got to drain the money somehow. And I think that um, one of the things that, you know, I, I'm not the first person to observe. I mean, I'm actually replying to people that observe that, like, why would you adventure if you had all that money? And the thing is, is that you, you need to have them spend it because otherwise people, it's it's not modern life. You don't take, you know, you go into the dungeon, you get a thousand gold pieces. You don't put like 10% in your 401k and then you invest in, you know, uh, different uh, mutual funds. And then you put some in for your, you know, retirement. You, know, you, don't, you don't do that when you're an adventurer, right? You're spending that money. You're living life. So, yeah, I think that, but that's funny. Put it in a dungeon. Uh, I mean, maybe that's it, right? I mean, when you think about Dungeons and Dragons in general, a lot of what people are doing is raiding you know, layers and tombs of such of, of uh, you know, olden heroes, whether they be wizards or whatever. So <laughs> that's actually kind of funny. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Yeah, I, I don't see a big issue with the... I think the key to backstories is that it can't give them an advantage, a mechanical advantage during the game, right? That's the big thing there. So they, you know, they... But as far as the your chainmail system, spending all the wealth you know, between adventures and, and doing the wide shot or zooming out between adventures, I think that works fine. That's what Barbarians Lemoria does. When you get done an adventure, you have to spend all your wealth before you can get the experience for that adventure. And you have to describe how you spent all your wealth. So it's a little more hand-wavy. It's not, you know, you're not actually spending money, like, you know, three gold pieces for this and five for that. You just say, oh, I spent doing this, this, and this but it's effectively the same idea. Looking forward to seeing your chart. I definitely think I'd prefer the chart. As far as backgrounds, like I said before, previously, I think a background chart's a great idea. I, I just, yeah, I, I, there's no negative to it. Um, as far as views, 
of course, you have panther-like. You have, you know, steel-like coils, um, you, you know, legs like oak, right? Or, or thighs, you know, you know, like oak tree trunks. Um, what else? Yeah, those are the ones that come to the top of my head. But I'm not a real creative type. I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones out there. So, anyhow, talk to you later. Yeah, my general take on backstories is exactly exactly yours, right? They shouldn't necessarily give the player a, a benefit in the game that other players don't have. You know, unless, obviously, that's part of the game. But what's funny is in this game, and Shame like kind of is going to be, it's going to kind of set, your, set up your skill set. But it's not a direct benefit, so I think it still fits into to my general feeling on that. But, uh... Oh, and also excellent Thews. We got to get our Thews chart going. But um, <laughs> yeah, thanks for calling. All right, this next uh, series of call-ins are from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. They are actually a reaction or in response to my YouTube video on alignment language. So if you haven't checked that out, I will try to put a link in the description. But it's on my YouTube channel, uh, Bandscape. In any case, uh, that's what these are about. He was driving or listening to it rather as a uh, as a podcast as he does. So he just responded this way, which is totally fine. If you guys want to call in after watching a YouTube video, that's also fine. I will probably be slower to react to the comment though, than I will be if you just type a comment under the video. <laughs> Thanks Jason for calling in though. I, I appreciate the thoughts and let's hear what Jason has to say. Hey Daniel, Jason here. Listen to your podcast on alignment languages on the way to work. Um, I'm calling you here cause it's easier to call you in the car than to type messages in YouTube while I'm driving and I'm not using data. Yay. Anyway, point being, as far as swords go, yeah, I think I like the idea of glyphs. I like the idea of being able to see, you, you know, whether that is a friendly sword, you know, whether those glyphs are, you know, hurt your eyes or whatnot. And I do like the idea, though, if you intentionally grab a sword with his glyphs or hurting your eyes, you, you're probably going to take damage. I'm okay with that. But I, I, really do like intelligent magic swords. And I think the idea that all magic swords are intelligent is a pretty awesome one. Um, which all you have to do is break the, the whole magic. Well, that's a whole different conversation that I'll talk to you another time on. But let's talk about alignment languages other than swords. So, yeah, for the three-point alignment system, I'm with you. I really like alignment languages to be the languages of law and chaos. And I think that'll work with any of the alignment versions per se, because you just leave it law and chaos, right? So whether you have a five-point alignment or nine-point alignment, the alignments are still law and chaos. I am not a fan of the cosmology of AD&D, where you've got all these different, you know, the nine different alignments, and each one has their own things. I'm not a big fan of that. I like having long chaos, and, and in my campaigns, I like to have just one pantheon anyway. I don't like to have Greek and Norse gods, although... Although the, the gods might have different aspects that different people worship. So Zeus and Odin might be the same god that different people worship with different names and different aspects of that god, right? I should be listening to these as I'm sending them because I'm kind of holding the phone down low so people don't see I'm recording on my phone while I'm driving. So, yeah, hopefully you're hearing me. Anyway, I like the idea what you laid out here for alignment languages for long chaos. For long chaos languages, I guess, not alignment languages. And I like the idea of the writing. I'm with you on that. And I really don't have a problem with that. And I think you would know if you intentionally align yourself with law or chaos, I think you you 
the idea that you would magically know and, and understand these things or recognize these things. You might not know them really in depth, but you would recognize, yeah, that's a friendly gesture or, you know, that that's an unfriendly gesture. Or, like you say, the glyph hurts your eyes or it doesn't. Um, I don't think neutral should have a language at all or glyphs or whatever. And I kind of don't think that um, the neutral guys should learn the others if they align with them. And, um, yeah, so, so I think if a neutral person just aligned himself with a lawful party to do a mission, I, I think it's more interesting if they don't automatically know those languages or they don't recognize those glyphs. And I think it's okay for them to feel that unease in their stomach or what when they pass those powerful, lawful protection glyphs, you're, like in your story or in the story you, you were reading from where they pass those stones, I think a neutral person would feel some unease because they're not really fully aligned. I, I think unless you really dedicate yourself, you, you shouldn't gain that ability personally. But, but I definitely don't. I think neutral are just people that have not sided with law or chaos, which might be the majority of people, right? And, and I think your animals, your unintelligent animals will all be neutral and all that, right? So I, I don't know. But I don't think neutral should have a language. I think law and chaos should. And I think that would fit in any game that you have that kind of cosmology. Yeah, you know, neutral is always interesting to me because I, there's lots of different ways to do it. Like if you look at Lamentations of the Flame Princess, he basically says what you said. Most people are neutral. They haven't picked a side. If you look at uh, something like Lord of the Rings, though, or that type of uh, setting, right, I guess you might not pick a side because you're unaware. Like the hobbits at first, right, they don't even know what's going on. So you've got these, you know, let's say in, in a regular setting, you might have like humans out there that are just farmers growing their turnips, wanting to bring them to to market in the fall. I mean, they're not thinking about law and chaos and that stuff until it reaches their doorstep. So that that's kind of interesting where you say that. And and for that reason, they wouldn't necessarily feel, let's say, committed or aligned. And and I think you're right. If you're if you're neutral and you're just joining a party for a time until you make that actual commitment, I am committing now to be on the side of a law and that's where I am at, you would not be able to to read the languages or see it. And yeah, maybe they'd feel unease in both cases. Like a neutral might be able to penetrate the chaotic, uh, you know, let's say stones that are, that are warded against lawfuls, but they wouldn't feel good about it. And probably the same thing about the, the lawful stones, uh, you know, especially if they're, um, if they're unsure, if they're leaning towards law, then maybe they would just feel a little unease in their stomach. If they're leaning towards chaos, maybe it would, uh, actually they'd feel very sick and that could actually be kind of, kind of fun for, uh, for role play and also to drop some 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 hints and stuff to the player characters that their NPC with them that's neutral might not be as neutral as you think. We see that kind of cosmology in a number of places. Um, obviously, Moorcock. Obviously, the book you read from. We see it in Stephen King. We see it in the um, the series that I'm brain farting that I'll have to send you a message on. Um, the adversary series. You know the one the movie The Keep is from. That that series, um, by is it Paul W. Anderson or no Paul W. Wilson or something like that? Um, but that's actually a really good series. That's the um, Repairman Jack series. Also ties into that R really good series. that also has basically the Long Chaos thing. What I like about that version of Long Chaos is kind of like Moorcock, where Long Chaos are their own means. Neither one cares about humanity. Law isn't antagonistic towards humanity like chaos is, but effectively law will use humanity w without regards for that individual human's, you know, best interest. 
law will use humans without, you know, that human's best interest in mind. It doesn't care about the individual human, but law isn't worried about wiping out the human race, where chaos ultimately does want to corrupt the human race. Um, anyway, you have to go read the series. But, yeah, I'm, da- I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I like it. Um, as far as the alignments and you doing a series on that, I, I want a podcast, not podcast. I want a YouTube video on each alignment, how to play it. Nine point AD&D alignment. I, I want you to do a separate video for each alignment and give examples how to play it best. I think that'll be a great series and I look forward to it. Talk to you later. Well, yes, that's a great series. I'm, uh, you know, that's a good idea. And I'll do each one in character, possibly uh, with a musical incom- accompaniment. Uh, I will sing my alignment to the crowd and uh, watch them uh, run at my terrible singing. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Though, yeah, lots of good info. I mean, I, I find alignment to be fascinating. I, I, what I'm finding is the more I look at things, people talk about alignment and this and that, you've got these really... Uh, these people that are adamant against using it or they think it's stupid, which I always hate when we use words like that. But um, I find that if you dig down to the root of it, it's usually because some bozo, um, you know, that was a DM for them, did some something bad to them. And then they just have that stuck in their mind that it's the rule. And, you know, oftentimes it's not the rule. It's the, it's the person using the rule that uh, this is going to be true of, you know, rule zero discussions and other things as well. So, yeah, I'm definitely, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to break down the, the AD&D alignments, but yeah, I definitely will probably talk a little bit more about alignment, especially as they will pertain to the worlds that I'm building. Um, and I also like the idea that um, they might not be balanced. You know, I think what make what draws heroes forward, right, is that either is the balance is being tipped, right? So either the, the it's been, and I say balance being tipped, meaning that generally, you know, if you think about chaos as destructive, which is what I think what a lot of people think of chaos as, then chaos might only be a third of what's out there, right? You need some destruction, but it can't be half, or can it? And I think in a lot of worlds, right, we we have like the majority of what's there is law, the fantasy worlds I'm talking about. The majority of what's there is law, and often heroes are called to uh, action when the uh, the chaos starts to creep past their, their, the point where it starts to crunch and get into the areas of uh, the common folk, if you will, right? It's fine if the chaos lives out there in the woods somewhere, but as soon as it starts breaching the towns, you know, that's the problem. But also when the towns start breaching the woods and then the chaos is uh, cornered, you know, what does the chaos do but reach out? So, and that that builds this kind of uh, this back and forth. But in a sword and sorcery campaign, I like the idea of like chaos being the norm. And actually, if you look at uh, Hyborea as a setting, the vast majority of people worship uh, Zizakwa. I can never say it right. But that's a chaotic god. I mean, most people are chaotic in, in Hyboria. So it actually is kind of a uh, a chaotic environment if you use the, the world itself. And those, the PCs that are lawful and that stand for law, really are in the minority. So it actually creates a really interesting narrative. All right. I would like to thank all my callers and you, the listener, and... All that other good stuff. Um, if you don't already, you can follow me on YouTube. Like I said, you could either comment there or you could, uh, I guess, call in if you'd like. I always enjoy it. And uh, that Google Drive link and all the other stuff will be in the show notes so that you guys can check out that stuff. And uh, I'll see you next time.